2 Timothy 3, I'm going to read the first 11 verses, but if we have time, we'll go through the whole chapter. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. King James says perilous times. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. People will be abusive. They will be disobedient to parents. They will be ungrateful. They will be unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. They will be without self-control. They will be brutal. They will not be loving good, but they will be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, by the way, those are Pharaoh's court magicians' names, according to history, so these men also oppose the truth, men who are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, Paul now addresses Timothy, and through his words to Timothy, he's addressing us. You Christians, you Timothy, however, you have followed my teaching. You followed my conduct. You followed my aim in life. You followed my faith. You followed my patience. You followed my love. You followed my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Antioch at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all, from them all, the Lord rescued me. The remaining verses are what I hope to end the message with because the remaining verses tell us what every single Christian must prioritize from this day forward if they hope to endure until the end. I don't mind telling you that it's highly likely that there are people in this room who need to listen to this alarm with everything within them because it is God coming to you in grace and mercy with a strong and final wake-up call saying, I'm calling you to wake up. It is a word for the room, but in the room there are individuals, and for those individuals, God is saying intensely, this is my call for you to wake up. Because Sunday mornings is not only, according to Dr. King, the most segregated hour, it is also the most religious hour. And we here in the Bible Belt have religion ad nauseum, and Sundays is like the religion buffet where you can come in for whatever your tithe price might be and gorge on all that you can have and then leave drunk with everything you ate, but then soon enough you're back feasting at other tables. And the Lord is saying to us in this generation, if I can paraphrase, this is what I hear prophetically every day. I'm not playing around. I am the God of the Bible, and I'm not playing around. Now, yes, he's a good, good father. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's merciful. Of course, he's compassionate. Of course, he's slow to anger. But notice it says he's slow to anger. It doesn't say he won't ever get angry. And I believe that we're on the back end of the withholding of that anger that will find the planet one day. And so when I read these words, though I'm going to preach towards you, I promise you the Holy Spirit's been preaching me to me these things all week long. And so let's get into this together. Now, when we're talking about an end times on-ramp, means we're going to be exiting the, the world as we know it. It was that famous prophet of the 1980s, Michael Stipe of REM, who said, it's the end of the world as we know it. And then he added this, and I feel fine. I'm going to tell you, I believe it is close to the end of the world as we know it, but I'm not feeling fine about that because I don't think most people are ready. And so when I'm looking at this, I'm realizing there's so much in the New Testament 
that is given to us by way of alarm and by way of discernment that we can actually know the season in which we are living. I, I just took a few moments in Matthew 16 and Matthew 24 this morning, and I remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16 to a group of people that were wanting a sign of the end of the age or a sign that he was truly the Messiah. And Jesus gave this principle. He said this, he said, you can study the sky and you know how to determine what weather is coming by what you see in the sky. And then he adds this, he says, but can you not look around and discern the times that you're living in right now? He says, you know how to predict weather patterns by what you see, but you don't know how to predict prophetic intentionality by what you see. And so later, eight chapters later in Matthew 24, Jesus is asked again, what are the signs before the end of the age? And let me just run through them real quick. I'm not going to preach them. I'm just going to remind you because Paul takes a slightly different um, approach to it. Jesus says, look for an increase of earthquakes at the end of the year. This is in Matthew 24. Uh, look for famines. Look for false messiahs. Look of actual wars and threatening of more wars, news or rumors of wars to be increasing. Jesus said, look for international hostility. By the way, that wasn't even available in the moment that Jesus spoke it. You didn't have 24-7 news being pumped into you. We're a generation that knows international hostility the day that it happens. Jesus said that there would be global persecution of believers. There's never been a more persecuted generation than the one in which you are living right now. Jesus also indicated that there would be a great falling away from the faith. That means people that used to write his songs would one day say, I don't even believe in him anymore. Jesus said that's going to happen wide scale. He said there will be false prophets who will be posing as Christian messengers, and there will be an increase of counterfeit signs and wonders. That doesn't take away from the reality that there will be authentic signs and wonders, but he says there will be false prophets who can do signs and wonders, and he's saying you need to discern that. Jesus said that there would be strange phenomena in the celestial realm before the return of the Son of Man. Jesus said that there would be an outbreak of professing Christians who will grow cold in their love. All of this is in Matthew 24, but the good news is that Jesus said before the coming of the Son of God that there would be a massive global advance of the gospel where the word would go forth into every nation. So I think that would be enough for, for our attention to be gotten this morning. So what do we need? I, I believe we need a second, First Chronicles 12, 32, sons of Issachar kind of anointing on this generation. The sons of Issachar were those that understood the times and knew what they needed to do. And friends, that's what the church needs right now. We need men and women who understand the times by what they see and what they read. And when those two things connect, there needs to be an anointing of a call to action. What do we need to do? Because prophetic scripture is not given to titillate us or to tantalize us or to make us curious about these things. Prophetic scripture, the, the end times prophecies, both Old Testament and New Testament, are always connected to a calling of action. And those of us that have the hope in the return of the Son of God, one of the clear things that we're told is that everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself. That means that if, if we're singing about the coming of the Son of God, if we're looking forward to the reign of Jesus Christ again on planet Earth, if we cannot wait because the, the blessed hope within us is to meet him face to face, I want to tell you, if any of that's real in us, then we're also living with the conviction that we must be aligned in righteousness and mission with our lives. And if we're not aligned in a growing righteousness, and our lives are completely independent of the purpose and the mission of the Son of God, then I dare risk it by saying this, I don't think we love his, his coming as much as we sing it and preach it. And so let's get into the Word. I want to talk to you, first of all, in the first five verses, because where Jesus gives a lot of signs broadly in the earth and in the sky and in the earthquakes and famines and all this geological stuff that's going to happen towards the end of the age, Paul goes mostly anthropological. He says, I want you to know what people will be like at the end of the age. This whole passage is about what will people be like as we near the end of the age and the second coming? What are they going to be like? And so look at the radical leanings in the last generation, radical leanings in the last generation. Paul says this, understand this. So there's a call to discernment. 
I want you to see it. I want you to understand this. What, Paul? What are you telling us? In the last day, there's going to be times of difficulty. The English word there in the English Standard Version that I preach and teach out of is, is difficulty is a little bit of an understatement. It's actually a Greek word that translates the, the times towards the end of the age are going to be incredibly violent. They're going to be very dangerous. The word indicates troubled times, perilous times, fierce times. Now, I'm not going to even waste your time trying to submit to you that that's the generation we live in. And if we're going to be very accurate scripturally, theologically accurate, the last days began on the day of Pentecost. It was announced, this is what the prophecy that Joel gave means, that in the last days, that's when the last days began. But there's this motif of uh, impregnation, uh, gestation, labor, and birth that is used. And so we have had the, um, the conception on the day of Pentecost of the last days. And then there has been gestation. And now I believe that we are in the labor pains and all the women in the room that have given birth, you know the intensity of those labor pains. We've got baby Neum right over here. I believe we're right there near the birthing of the end of the days. And so Paul says this, he says, I want you to understand when you see this increasing and increasing and increasing, you need to know what times you're living in. And then he's going to describe these days of peril, these days of difficulty. And so the description of the last days is not for Paul geological or astronomical or even biological, it's anthropological. He says, look at people, and when you see these things, I want you to understand you're in it. And here's where I don't want anybody to cop out, because it's easy to say, yeah, well, that's the way people have always been. I want us to extract our heads out of the sand and come to a reasonable conclusion that the awareness is increasing that these things I'm about to share with you are exponentially compounding. This is not done in a little microcosm, a subculture in, in the midst of the greater culture. All of these things define our culture. So what are they? And I'm not going to harp long on each of them, but I'm going to go through each of them. First of all, people are going to be self-centered. They will be lovers of self. We are the selfie generation. It's a cute word, and I'm not telling you you're going to hell if you take selfies, but what I am saying is our culture, the selfie is just kind of like a banner that flies over the reality beneath it. The selfie is, look, I am, I, it's got to be all about me. I am the center of my own orbit, and I prefer if you orbit around me too. That is our culture. We're an offended and an entitled generation where we are so self-absorbed most of the people you meet today are going to be pre-offended when you meet them. They, they just come that way. It's, pre it's like they're coming out of the womb offended now. Little babies, if they could speak, they'd look up at mom and say, what took you so long? Been waiting nine months for this. But the reality, the, the, the serious reality is, is that ego is paramount in the last generation. Right beneath that, people are going to be greedy, lovers of money. Money is what spins our culture. And I will dare say this, that the church is not immune to it. So easy for people to live their week bowing at the altar of money, come in on Sunday, bow at the altar of God, and then go right back Monday and bow at the altar of money. Money being the driving force of so much in our culture. Not only greed and self-centeredness, but people will be egotistical. People are going to be abrasive. It says they'll be proud and arrogant and abusive. The Bible says that people are going to be rebellious against authority, and that's personified in children being disobedient to parents. I, I will just go ahead and be as practical as a pastor can be. If you're a young person in the room and you've got a rebel heart towards your parents, you need this warning. God's waking you up. You might be 18, 19, 20, but if you're under mama's roof or daddy's roof, guess who rules underneath that roof? It ain't you. And the desire in people, young people, to control their parents through a whole host of things. It's just a sign and a mark of the end of the age, but it goes beyond parental authority over children. What about civic authority over citizens? Governmental authority, authority in the schools, authority at the workplace. If we have rebel hearts, God's saying, I'm calling you to understand some things today because the time is short. An entitled generation, 
just says ungrateful. I don't even want to harp on that today. I don't even want to have to unpack that. I think it's plain that we are the most entitled generation. I shared with Billy and Gabe in our time together this morning that I'm officially old enough to see that there's a mark of distinction between me and a Generation X generation and young millennials in their generation. I've got a daughter who's a millennial and then got a son that's the generation coming after the millennials. And our mission base is staffed with lots of millennials and they love Jesus and they're going hard after Jesus. And I say this by way of just calling everyone, especially those in that generation in their 20s and early 30s, to consider the level of entitlement that is characterizing the millennial generation. That literally, that so many in that generation are aghast when they're called to die to their self or to serve sacrificially or to obey. And sometimes you just, this is life. Sometimes, young people, you just got to snap off a salute. Not everything's open to dialogue. Not everything is to be debated or to be reasoned through. I mean, sometimes, literally, this is just life. That, that literally, you just see somebody that's got more stripes than you, and you just, and you don't get to discuss it. And by the way, it's not just the young people that feel entitled. It's the parents that raise them sometimes. And what's happening is we're, 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 we're characterized by a very ungrateful generation. A whole lot of demand being verbalized in our culture and not a lot of thanks being verbalized. Irreverent, just says unholy. Generation will be irreverent, be unholy concerning the things of God. Cruel. I see the cruelty more than I ever have in my life. It says heartless, unappeasable, and slanderous. When I think of the cruelty that I see in our culture exponentially growing, I think of the what should be the most nurturing thing in the world, which would be a mother towards a child. And I'm reading stories of horrific things that are happening to children, no longer just at the hands of cruel men, but of cruel women, sometimes mothers. And I'm thinking to myself, how can these things be? And I, I realize I don't have the right to be shocked by it because I'm being told 2,000 years ago that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote in the, the Bible, what would become the Bible, that yes, at the end of the age, people are going to be heartless, unappeasable, and they're going to be slanderous. It means if they don't wound with their hands, sometimes they wound with their mouths. Violent, without self-control, and brutal. No need to unpack that. That's clear to all of us. Outraged and unteachable. Not loving good. Treacherous, reckless, swollen, with conceit, the unteachable generation, the outraged generation, the generation that doesn't love what is good. Sensual, says that there'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Uh, there will be a purging of the church of those who indulge their sensual appetites while pretending to be in fellowship with the Lord. Listen, that stuff's got to be purged from the church, and it's not a military purge, it's a spiritual purging. It means that the Lord's going to come hard after our double-mindedness when it comes to living for pleasure at the expense of living for God. But here's what's probably most noteworthy, at least to me because of the calling that God's given me. The end of the age is going to be characterized by a very religious generation having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Having an appearance of godliness, that means the right rhetoric, the right statements of faith, the right doctrinal stands, having, having squared up everything according to jot and tittle, precept upon precept in the scripture. They know how to say all the right things. They know how to move in the, in the gatherings, the Christianized religious gatherings. They know how to play the part, but there's no power. It indicates a religious approach to God that is based on ideas and speech, but not power. No power to love, no power to forgive, no power in the, in the supernatural realm, but only this mind, loving God with all the mind. We've got our doctrine and we've got our understanding. We've got our theology, but don't ask me to love somebody that's of a different race than me. Don't ask me to love somebody that's not really all that lovable. 
Don't ask me to sacrifice towards something that maybe I don't have control over. I've got theology. I've got appearance. I've got religion. But I don't have power. Jesus says that's one of the marks, excuse me, Paul says here, that's one of the marks of the end of the age. So the reason why I give you those is not only because they're right there inscripturated and they're preserved for our learning, but I'm telling you, just look around you. That's the age. You say, Jeff, we already knew that. Okay, I know that we know it, but how are we responding to it? Because if these indicators are truly marking this as a generation that is very near to the second coming, then what are we doing about it? How are we adjusting? How are we repenting? How are we committing? How are we orienting our lives? Because again, it's not just about having knowledge or a form of godliness. There's the power to change. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about how, do we necessarily believe this. It's easy to believe with the mind, but it requires the cross to orient our lives to it. And so go a little bit further because what Paul's going to do here is he's going to move beyond this um, radical leaning in the last generation, and he, and he highlights a certain segment, the religious leaders in the last generation. And what Paul is speaking of specifically here is religious leaders under the banner of Christianity in the visible church. He's not just, he's, he's not primarily talking about other religions. He's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, and both of them have been opposed and are being opposed and ultimately will continue to be opposed by false religious leaders, wolves, if you would, in sheep clothing in the church. And Paul is saying, I want you to know at the end of the age, both now, Timothy, when I'm writing you, but prophetically for all Christians, you need to understand that this is going to increase the closer we get to the end of the age. Some of these leaders are going to be subtle. They're going to be deceptive. He describes them as this. These leaders are among those that creep into households. Just get that vision. So these are religious leaders. They've got their Bible. They've got their books. They've got their lexicons. They've got their sermons. They've got an audience. They're stepping into uh, a gathering of believers. Of course, in the early church, there was no church building. They were meeting in houses, occasionally in synagogues. And so they would, they would come in, these leaders, and they would look the part. And if you're casual, and if you're not discerning, you're their mark. They're glad you're there. Why? Because they're creeping in not to glorify Jesus. They'll use words that are presumably meant to glorify Jesus, but that's not their motive. Their motive is not to bless you, it's to get something from you. And Paul, in a moment, is going to say, especially susceptible to this in the early church, were, were women who did not have a voice in that culture, did not have the right to question or ask, and all women were called to submit to all male authority prior to Jesus Christ coming and liberating and saying there is no distinction between male and female. The culture dictated all women had to listen to all men. And so they became especially... Um, vulnerable to these types of men that would creep in. By the way, it's, it's harder for a dude to creep in to an actual house these days, but they don't walk through the front door. They come in through the podcasts, through TV ministry. Yes, I know we have a TV ministry. Exhale. Internet, books, conferences, social media, one of the new things that pastors didn't have to deal with 25 years ago is undoing teaching that young Christians are getting like 10 hours of a week from their podcast. And if they don't have the right man or woman speaking to their life from the podcast, then they absorb all this information uncontested. And there have been many times where I've sat down with a 20-something and, and they're, they're coming up with these fringe doctrines. And I ask them, where are you getting this? And they'll say, well, I listen to so-and-so's podcast. I think, okay, then now that makes sense. What's happening? There's just new technological ways for false teaching to creep into households. doesn't mean every podcaster. Listen, I'm not telling you, you know, chuck your MP3 player and get it away. But what I am saying is this. I'm saying that the spirit of, of seduction is still coming against the church. And just because an individual says it with a whole lot of emphasis, zeal, rhetoric, eloquence, 
or conviction, just because he or she says it that way doesn't make it true. And Paul's going to show us how to never be deceived through these things. You, do you know you can live your life completely fear, fearless of being deceived by a false teacher, that you don't have to live an hour in any fear of being deceived by a false teacher? And I'll share, you, share with you how that is. Uh, some of these teachers are going to be convinced, but they're going to be corrupted. And that's where he brings in Janus and Jambres from Exodus 7. Paul says they are always learning, these teachers, always learning. They've always got something new. They got a new angle. They got a new doctrine. They got a new, have you considered this? Always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. That means they got a whole lot of words, a whole lot of impressive knowledge, a whole lot of things. And listen, false teachers love to traffic on the fringes of kingdom truth. They love to hang out out here to get you away from the central components of, of kingdom truth. They want you out here, and when they get you out here long enough and they get you thinking weird like they do, then you will eventually forget what has become boring centralized truth, the gospel, the foundation of love and obedience and mission and purpose and intimacy. They'll get you to forget all of that because they've got you out here chasing feathers in the wind. And so when, when Paul is exposing them, he says they're always learning. That means they're really, really convinced that they're right. They're committed, but they actually never get anchored into truth. And then he uses the two magicians in, in Pharaoh's court. Mark it down. These two Exodus 7 magicians, they had supernatural power. Remember? They threw down their stuff, turned into snakes. Moses threw down his rod. It became a snake and ate their snakes. So false teachers are not without supernatural ability sometimes. It's just not holy ability. The devil doesn't mind doing a sign and wonder. And so when Paul is bringing these in, he says, these are individuals that oppose the truth. They are corrupted in mind. And then he adds this, they are disqualified from the faith. Now, every true teacher can occasionally make a mistake, and sometimes it's a theological mistake. I listen to people, and I hear them, and I love what they're saying. I know they're saved. They're glorifying God, and then I'll hear something they say, and I'm like, oh, I wish he didn't believe that, but it doesn't make him a false prophet. It just makes he and I disagreeing in that area. If he's listening to my sermons, he'd probably say the same thing about me, but there are some false teachers who are apostate. They're unsaved. They are literally children of wrath posing as Christian teachers. And the, the, the intention of Paul is to say, as we approach the end of the age, expect it. Here's what I'd like to say by way of practical application to any that might hear this later, or maybe even some of you in the room. Just because a preacher deceived you, because he lied, because he got caught in immorality, because he turned out to be a wolf when he pretended to be a sheep, it never gives you the right to walk away from the people of God. It never gives you the right to quit mentally and emotionally and spiritually on Jesus because some human pseudo-representative of Jesus failed and proved to be deceptive. Why does it not give you the right? Because we're warned that that's going to characterize the end of the age. We're going to see it more and more, and the tactic of the enemy is to get you so discouraged about the pseudo-man of God, the pseudo-woman of God, that when they fall or fail, you're just like, none of this is real. But I want you to remember the Word of God. The Word of God says, no, not only is it going to happen, you're called to look for it and not be surprised when it happens. Why? Because it is an inscripturated sign of the times. And I'm not going to bore you to death with all of the um, examples of how that has happened. I do like verse number 9, though, because Paul says of these teachers, he says, they won't get very far. It's kind of cryptic, isn't it? It's kind of like, dun, dun, dun. They're not going to get very far. Their folly, their foolishness will be plain to all. You'll also see at the end of the age, the Lord exposing false teachers. The Lord will expose them. He will make their foolishness obvious to everybody. So he gives them time, perhaps maybe even to repent, and for some of them to repent and be converted. But if they will not, there will come a time where God will just pull the curtain back and he'll say, that's the reality that they've been operating in. And so we can't be, we can't be shocked. So last handful of verses, because now these are some verses, some of which I did not read. 
Now that we know all of the nasty that's going to be happening in the culture at the end of the age, now that we see all of the garbage, we see how the hearts of people are going to be so self-absorbed, so demanding that we orbit around them, that a generation, the generation prior to the coming of Christ will be almost entirely marked, the unregenerate generation, of being so self-focused. It's a worship of self. It is narcissism to the core. You, th you haven't seen anything yet. And that's going to grow and it's going to grow. And we know they're going to be like that. And we know people are going to be cruel. And we know persecution is going to happen. It can all grieve us, but we can't be shocked by it. And here's the thing. Don't dismiss it either. The opposite of being shocked by it is to become numb to it. And so we've got to retain a heart that feels like the heart of God feels over these things. Instead of saying, oh no, I can't believe that happened. But, but, but by looking at the word and saying, no, it was prophesied that this would happen. I'm grieved to the core. And who can I help that won't get sucked in to this generation? How do we rescue? How do we approach people? How do we expose error? How do we warn one another? Friends, every relationship in the body of Christ can't be just always constantly pat on the back, encouraging, comforting, and helping. I'm preaching out of Jeremiah 12 in the next service. And Jeremiah comes before the Lord and he says this. He says, Lord, there's injustice in the land. God, all these wicked people are prospering. I'm your prophet and I'm suffering. I'm being persecuted. And you've planted them and they're bearing fruit. That Jeremiah is so overwhelmed by what he sees in the generation. He's saying to the Lord, he's saying, why are you letting this happen? And you'd think God would say, Jeremiah, I'm so sorry you feel this way. I didn't realize all this was affecting you in such a way. Come here. Hug time. Come on, son. The Lord doesn't do that. Do you know what the Lord says to Jeremiah in chapter 12, verse 5? He says, oh, Jeremiah. I'll paraphrase. You're actually dealing with kindergarten stuff, and it's wearing you out. Son, you're about to get thrown into graduate school to find out what's coming. But literally, God says, Jeremiah, you're struggling while you're warring against the foot soldiers, what are you going to do when the whole battalion shows up and warfare comes against you and they're riding on horses? Friends, that's a word for this generation. We are crumbling. I know it's a, an inflammatory term, and I don't think it just applies to young people, but the term that was coined a few years ago of snowflake, what happens when the tiniest amount of heat hits a snowflake? It puddles up. And I'm concerned that the church, because of a lack of depth in teaching, a lack of accountability, a lack of exposing and talking about the, the, the more hard-edged components of reality in this world that we're living in, because everything's supposed to be sugar-coated, and it's supposed to be sweet, and it's supposed to be encouraging and affirming, and can't you just hug us preachers, you know, just love on us a little bit. Listen, I get all of that, but we're, 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 we're operating in a spirit of whininess. That's not in the Bible, but it's real. We're whining about stuff. I just hear the voice of the Lord saying to me when I get into a whiny moment. I'm not, I'm not immune from it. I can, I've, I, I do that from time to time. And when I do, I just feel like my, my father in heaven who loves me and he knows my frame and he knows I'm dust. He knows that I'm not super Christian. I get it. But I also hear the one who is compassionate and tender. I can hear him say, are you kidding me, Jeff? Are, are you kidding me? Do you know what your brothers and sisters are dealing with in the Middle East? Do you know what they're enduring? And you're over here and you're, you're getting in this moment. I'm concerned that we're churning out in this generation a lot of Christians that are being trained to think that it's all about them. God is wise to know how much of it to make about you, but he never invites you to make any of it about you. And so when we, we get to this place, what are we going to do? Because we are the righteous lovers. That's our position. That's our invitation. The righteous lovers of the last generation. Because Paul now says, Timothy, I've told you about them. Now, Timothy, I'm going to talk to you about you. And Timothy, in this message that I'm giving, is representing all of us as the believers who are being contrasted with an unbelieving or an apostate generation. 
I want to be a righteous lover of the Son of God. That means I want to love him as he is worthy to be loved, and I want to be growing in that. And I don't want it just to be my, my alignment of theology. I want to love him not only with my mind, but with all of my heart, with all of my strength. I want my love before him to be increasing in passion as the intensity against righteousness is increasing in this generation. And so I want to grow in my, but, but how do I do it? How do I keep from ever being deceived? How do I keep from getting off track? How do I keep as a Christian from becoming self-absorbed? How do I refuse to become a snowflake of the Spirit? How do I say, Lord, it is all about you. That's not just what we sing or what we preach or what we give lip service to, but it is how we live well, I'm going to give you something that might make you yawn, but I'm going to tell you it's a non-negotiable if we want to endure to the end of the age. It is the Word of God. It is the truth of God's Word, the dusty book on the corner table in many a Christian home. It is the Word of God. Because Paul now says, Timothy, I want to recenter you so that you're never a part of this. So, we're going to see in verses 10 and 11 that friends, as the righteous lovers of God, we love his call. The call on your life as a Christian. He says, you, however, Timothy, you, in contrast to these false teachers and the spirit of the age, you, Timothy, you followed my teaching. You have followed my doctrine. Don't ever mistake my distaste for people that are only theological as ever being communicating this, that theology isn't important. Theology is extremely important. Theology defines what we believe and we will never live above what we believe. And so he says, you, Timothy, you followed my teaching. And then as a leader, he says, you, Timothy, you followed my conduct. Paul could say, this is what I believe and this is how I live. And Timothy, you're wise to follow both. He says, my aim in life, my purpose. Paul's purpose was clear. He was the apostle, of course, but he was a Christian before he was an apostle, before he was living out that apostolic ministry. And the course of his life, the aim in his life was always towards the occupied throne of God. And Timothy knew that. And everything Paul did came, it was sourced in his purpose, his purpose to make Jesus Christ great in his generation, to make him known, to advance the gospel, to rescue those who will believe. He says, Timothy, you've known my faith. You've known my patience. And that word faith indicates faithfulness. In other words, Timothy, you've watched me endure and you know that I've never quit. Timothy, you know that I'm patient. I bear with troubling circumstances. Timothy, I so love God's call that I can't help but to love you, Timothy, and I love others. You know my love, Timothy. You know my steadfastness in the midst of persecution. Timothy, you know my sufferings. Now, this is where I get a little hitch in my giddy-up. Because I can go with Paul. I can say, yes, you know my theology. Yes, you know how I live my life. Yes, you know my life's purpose. Yes, you know that I am trying to abide faithful and up to this point I have. Yes, you know that I know how to endure. You know that I'm growing in love. And you know that I've learned how to be steadfast as a Christian, always pressing in. And then we hit my persecutions and my suffering, and I'm like, I got nothing. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. The end of the age will be marked by suffering and persecution. I literally prayed through this not long ago. I said, Lord, I don't feel like I really suffer. I don't want to go chase it, but why is it absent? I, I don't really feel like I'm persecuted. I don't know that I've ever really experienced persecution uh, or suffering relationally from the unsaved world. I've experienced quite a bit of heat from disgruntled members of the body of Christ. But I've asked the Lord, I said, Lord, where, what, if, if I'm walking with you and I'm following you and I'm living for you, why, why don't I suffer? And this is what I heard, and I'll just tell you and you can do what you want with it. I've heard this. You haven't yet. You haven't yet. If we believe our Bibles, and this is probably the strongest tone in the alarm for me, 
Because when suffering and persecution hits, and it will hit the American church, it will. I know we think we're immune from everything. Y'all let me be bold this morning. I'm not aiming this at anybody, but I'm, I, I want to expose some generation and some cultural lies in the church. We're so used as Americans as being impervious, impervious and insulated from all things harmful because we've grown up in a culture and in a nation that really, aside from 9-11, we've just really been completely insulated. And so when Western 20th and 21st century Christians read about the, the prophetic promise that suffering and affliction and persecution is going to come to believers all over the globe, we think, man, I'm glad I'm in America. As if that's not applying to us. There was no America when that was written. And friends, here's my concern. This is the strongest tone in the beep, beep, beep of the alarm. The strongest thing that's hit me is when persecution and suffering hits the body of Christ, what are you going to do? It's a legit question. What am I going to do? If, if we are wearied while running with the footman, what will we do when the horses come? That was what God asked Jeremiah and I believe that's a question that we need to answer. If we aren't faithful now in the days of ease, how will we expect to be faithful when the price is higher? If we're not committed to the gospel now when our whole culture still basically lets us, and in some corners in the Bible Belt, it's even admired in certain ways. If, if we are not steadfast now, what are we going to do when literally all of hell breaks loose? And so Paul says, Timothy, you know how to follow my, my steadfastness you, in my persecutions and my sufferings. I endured those persecutions. And he said, and the Lord has rescued me out of all of them. So the focus is the Lord. And I got a few minutes left. Let me just give you this. We love God's glory. We don't just love his call to endure, persevere, and to remain Christ-centered in our life's purpose, but we love his glory. Why? Because it says, indeed, all who live, excuse me, desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen, the reason why our brothers and sisters that are currently being persecuted all over the world, the reason why those churches are growing instead of shrinking the most persecuted territories, so the places where potentially the most heaviest persecution comes, is also the places where, where revival is breaking out. House churches, underground churches, churches led by women. Billy referenced this on Friday night. Churches, the church in Iran where massive revival is taking place, and women are, are, are facilitating so much of what's going on there. Why? Because they love God's glory. They've met the Son of God. They believe in Him. He's not commonplace where they are. He's not, he's not presumed upon. He is the precious, glorious Son of God. And friends, if, if, if there's going to be a mark that needs to hit the church now, not in a year, now, it needs to be that we are unimpressed with lesser glories. The glory of money, the glory of pleasure, the glory of self, the glory of religion, the glory of success, the glory of accomplishment, the glory of our heritage. There's, there, there may be lawful pleasure in each one of those categories, but there's no glory in it. It's the only way we're going to endure. It's the only way we're going to overcome. It's the only way we're going to advance is if we become reinfatuated with the glory of the Son of God. And that'll never happen on accident in our lives. Three more verses. We love living in distinction. Stay with me for these last couple of minutes. Look at what he says. He says, Timothy, I want you doing this. And Timothy, everybody that desires to live a godly life in Jesus is going to be persecuted. While we are living for the glory of Jesus, Timothy, evil people and imposters. Do you know how politically incorrect that is? Evil people and imposters, watch this, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That is your Bible. Paul is saying, Timothy, it is bad right now. We're living, Timothy, in the last of days. This is 2,000 years ago. And, he's, and this is the Word of God. As it approaches more and more, it's not going from bad to good or from bad to better. The Word of God says it's going from bad to worse. Anthropology grows worse as we approach the coming of the, sec of the second coming of Jesus Christ. People are going to get worse. Woo! 
are you glad you came this morning? You're getting encouraged. And we're, we're walking around, man. We're like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that guy did this, and this lady said that, and this person did this, and, the, and these overt expressions of radical sin and a commitment to waywardness and, and, and blasphemy. I can't believe this. Why can't you believe it? It's in your Bible. It's fine to be outraged about it, but the high calling of the outraged is not to write about it on social media. <laughs> Keyboard warriors. Ta-da! I had sinned in the name of Jesus. I'm sure that that tweet will transform the world. You know how many people you've convinced by your Facebook post and your tweets? Goose egg. They already got their minds made up. That's why they unfollowed you, because you kept preaching stuff they didn't want to hear. Evil people and imposters. Friends, listen. We need to be wise in how we steward this. But not everybody's good. There really is a difference, a distinction. We are the church of Jesus Christ. God sees us as distinct. Jesus does. I see my bride distinct from every other woman. I interact with my bride in one way that I don't interact with any other woman. I am hers, she is mine. Jesus views us, his bride, different than every other human, uh, sector of humanity. And we are to be distinct as his bride. So as the world grows worse, as evil people increase in their evilness, as imposters, literally posers, Christian posers, expound in number, Paul leans in, he says, but not you, Timothy. And Timothy might have asked, well, how? Well, I'm going to give you these last words, and then we'll quit. We actually love not just God's word, the Bible, but we actually love the words within the word. As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, don't lose what you've been given from God. Know from whom you learned it. He's probably either talking about himself there, Paul was, or Timothy's mother and grandmother. Verse 15, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise. He's talking about Scripture. Though they did not have the full canon, which we have, they had Scripture, what we call the Old Testament, and the early writings by the time, the early New Testament writings, some of them were available by the time Paul was writing 2 Timothy. He says, those sacred writings, the Word of God, Timothy, they'll make you wise. Not in just a general, okay, I have spiritual wisdom, but in specificity. Be wise about the times you're living in. Be wise about what you see. Be wise about the spirit of the age. Be wise about the trajectory of the culture in which you are deposited. Be wise about it. Be wise about what God says concerning the end of the age. He says all scripture is breathed out by God. It's alive. That book is alive. And the life within it is only accessible if you ingest it. He's breathed it out so that we might breathe it in. He says it's profitable to be taught. That's why I've taken almost 55 minutes of your time this morning to teach the Bible instead of telling you what I did on Friday and Saturday. To teach you the Word of God. Because when you believe it, when you ingest it, when you actually let the Word shape you and frame you, and you don't dismiss it when it calls you into account, or forces you to change, or calls you up to a higher level. You don't blow it off because eh, that would make your snowflake melt. You don't do that. Why? Because it's God saying, I want to breathe some profitability into you. For reproof and correction, that means God's word will get all up in your face and reprove you and correct you. It'll train you in righteousness. Training, open-ended, the most mature saint in the building, you're still being trained in righteousness. You're still being sanctified. You're still being called into greater intimacy, which breeds greater Christ-likeness, and it comes through the Holy Spirit's activity, and it also comes through your awareness of what God has said in His Word. Why? So that you may be mature, equipped for every good work. Friends, I don't know that I have ever been more stirred 
about this component of my calling? To preach the word. Most of us would give an assent to the importance of God's word because that's just a Christian virtue. It's kind of a pillar. But we can't just say yes to a, to a statement about it. If we're not in it, it's not in us. And if it's not in us, everything else that is getting in us is actually developing who we are. And friends, the alarm is going off. We are on the on-ramp to the end times. The word of God, the person of God and the word of God, centralized. Here's the, here's the I'm gonna have you stand your feet, go ahead. We will be unapologetically spirit-led, Jesus-centered, and word-proclaiming. That's, that's not a boast. I'm just letting you know that's part of who we are and what we're about here. It's, it's way too late in the game to be abandoning our Bibles, or not even abandoning them. It's way too late in the game to go another day and neglecting them. For those of you, this is, this is how I'm going to pray. We're not going to do an invitation. Thank you, Gabby. Just bow your head. Just do that for a moment. I'm just going to pray this very simple prayer. Holy Spirit, please put oil on it where it lands. Father, for those who are bored with the word, just give them a hunger for it. You are alive inside of each of your children. Let your hunger become theirs. Take away boredom. We cancel the satanic assignment against the church where he intoxicates us with the world to the extent that we're bored with the word. We cancel that assignment on this mission base, this church. And we say, Lord, develop our appetites, increase the anointing of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Let them come alive to the Bible if they're bored with the word. May the preachers and teachers in this house fall in love again with the word, every part of it, Lord, even the parts that aren't our sweet spot in teaching and preaching. We honor you and we thank you for the word. Keep us, Lord, in it. Give us steadfastness through the end of this age. And I say with the Apostle John, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In your name, amen.